Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today on Vulnerable, I get a chance to speak with the wonderful Alina K. Roby. She's an independent missionary who works with Shade for Children on the ground in Western Ukraine. I've met her on social media and was instantly touched by her work. And I was more than honored to have her on and to chat with her about her reality. And please, I do encourage you to seek out someone like Alina if it is not her to try to be charitable and help because winter is coming and it's going to be really hard for them to get resources and to stay warm. I'm Christy Carlson Romano and this is The Vulnerable Podcast. Hi. Hi. How are you? Uh, I'm super excited to be having a conversation with you. Oh gosh. That's... And I'm actually so super excited to be having a conversation with you. Christy, I have to get this out in the front end. Do it. Get it out. I'm going to fangirl just a little bit. You should. I was your audience. (laughs) Amazing. I I was the prime age for Kim Possible, even Stevens, Cadet Kelly. So I was your audience and I I adored you growing up. Oh, cool. this This is really cool for me. But like, can we just say like how cool social media is in this day and age and like how it connects us? I mean, literally, I'm speaking to you. It's evening in the Ukraine right now where you are. And we've we've met through me, I guess, stalking you or following you and then sort of hoping to hear back from you, honestly, because, you know, I may have done things that you grew up watching, but like. I'm watching you now. Mm-hmm. And for me, what you're doing is extremely impactful to me as an adult versus anything that I've done was just impactful for you as a, you know, as a young person. But wow, how cool. <laughs> it is very cool. And I actually, the moment that I got your message about coming on the podcast, uh, I was with one of my friends and I was like, if I could like go back in time and tell 10-year-old Lena that she's going to get to have a conversation with Kim Possible, like she would have <laughs> lost her mind and probably not believed me. But yeah, it's this like feels kind of like a full circle moment. I'm loving as it. As I like reflect on how I got here and then just get to talk to someone who I so admired and looked up to as a kid. Like, I don't know. It is really cool. And we live in such a weird small world. <laughs> it's such a weird small world. and And that's the truth right is that we are really just so connected and i think that our millennial space our our era if you want to call it i think we're learning how to live less isolated by just reaching out to people that we have common interests or goals or want to support and show support so for those of you who are listening to vulnerable today i have uh miss alina here and we are we are chatting with her from ukraine and she is on the ground there where she does amazing work with orphanages and also an NGO and a charity. And we'll get into that. And so she's been posting on TikTok pieces of how she's working with orphanages and with orphans and certain people who have been divided from their families and are waiting to be reunited and all stages of that. And she's been very helpful and very nurturing. And it's wonderful to see the content because I think it brings us closer to the realities of what's happening around us and not just the, you know, what is it like a six inch phone in front of our face. 
So please talk to me about, like, basically just introduce yourself, I guess, tell us who you are and how you've come to not just the missionary work part of it, but like what has brought you and called you into, into working with children and writing yeah. a children's book, I should say, too. <laughs> yeah, those things felt very disconnected at one point in my life, but have, like I said, so many things come full circle. But yeah, my name's Alina. I have lived in Ukraine for 10 months now. Wow. Um, I actually moved here a full 23 days before the full-scale invasion started. I didn't move here like in response to the potential of that happening. It's been a plan of mine for years. It was just, some might say terrible timing, some might say perfect timing, but it has been an incredible year. I never imagined that war would be a part of my experience. I think we are so disconnected from it in the U.S. that um, any type of conflict like this just is something that we see at a distance. But it has been an honor to come alongside the Ukrainian people in this incredible time of need and fight and um, just to be able to witness and be a a very, very small part of this really incredible and important part of history. So I appreciate you just giving me the opportunity to shed more light on it and talk about it. I didn't think that orphan care or missionary work was actually going to be a, a part of my journey up until about maybe four years ago. But it makes so much sense now for me, uh, looking back on all of the little parts of my life that have led me to this moment and to this where I'm at and what I'm doing. I definitely had an adverse childhood um, as I've learned to define it through therapy where, yeah, my reality was different than I think would have been ideal or mm -hmm would have been the most nurturing. Got it. And I think what I learned through that of being exposed to a lot of really adult concepts at a really, really young age is that simply children are vulnerable to the decisions of the adults around them. And I was a result of that. I My childhood was not ideal and it was really difficult and it was nothing that was under my control. I, it was all a result. Were you in foster care at one point? I was not, um, okay. but I would say that I lived a life that could have very easily led there. I lived with my grandparents for several years and had they not been in my life and a part of what was going on in my family, then I, I think that could have been an end result for me. And I'm so, I'm so thankful for the people I had in my life who protected me, who advocated for me. And so much, so much about my life could have been different had I not had that. But, uh, I did learn, I did learn from an early age that there is so much out of your control. And, uh, you, you just have to figure out whether you're going to let these things break you, harden you, or if you can remain soft in them and you can let them empower you and encourage you and guide you. And wow. I don't know, how, like, I can't tell you the moment in time where I was like, decided not to let the experiences of my life harden me. I think a part of that was just my nature. I have a very empathetic nature. I was a very, very emotional child. I cried you when I was that like it's a bad thing, you know? It's not, it's not. <laughs> it's not. And I know that now. I know yeah. that now, but I, I didn't know it then. I hated it about myself then. Yeah. But yeah, I, I didn't let I didn't let it harden me the way it very well could have. And I think it was that experience, being able through some miracle to remain soft and empathetic through it, led me to this deep desire to um, be that advocate for other children that are simply just living lives that are an, a result of decisions that were made by the adults in their lives. And that's what I see here, working within the orphan care system here in Ukraine. These kids are the as vulnerable as it gets to the world. And especially in, in a country that's at war, it just increases the level of vulnerability that they have. And so, yeah, I, that's, that's what led me here. I don't think I would have said that when I was actually making the decisions to like 
pursue working within orphan care or even moving to Ukraine, but just throughout this year of like really reflecting of like, how did I, like, how did I end up here? I'll like go out on my patio and like look out on my view of Ukraine and there'll be like air raid sirens going off and I'll be like, how did I end up here? I bet. And it's through asking myself that question many, many times that I realized it was because in my childhood, I didn't let myself go hard to what I saw in the world. And instead I let my, I let it create this empathy for others that were experiencing that. This is beautiful because when we think of, okay, so firstly, I can relate to the hardness concept to the, I think we, we would call it a loss of innocence, right? Mm -hmm. Where it's like that concept of magic and wholesomeness and like joy, uh, you know, like unadulterated joy. I think that's why there's so many Disney adults, you know, people who like love to go to the parks and wear the ears and, you know, there's a whole economy behind that now. But in essence of what the basis of that is, is like it's people who've had trauma and still, you know, they they need that fix of wholesomeness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But in the same token... We're talking about getting hard. And I remember was like, when, when I was young, I, I felt the same way. I was like, I don't want to lose this part of me. How do I keep it? And for, for me, I ended up projecting what I thought hard was. So I tried to dress tougher, talk tougher, be tougher. And it led me down some really dark roads. So it's so yeah. wonderful to see the different roads people take with that same struggle. And also like with hardness, when we talk about hardness, that's not what hardness actually is because what you're doing is hard it takes a resilience and a strength that is uh, doesn't mean that you have to let go of the softness right do you mm-hmm. can you speak to that like how you've found resilience in this yeah i think when i say hard i think what i mean is like and i did I did do this for, there was, there was a small period, not small, there was a significant period of my life where I did do this, but by being hard, I block myself off from like the real authentic feelings, emotions. And when, when that happens, when you harden yourself to those things and you block them off, then you can't be activated by them and you can't be changed by them and you can't be transformed by them because you're just you're just closing yourself off to it, right? Do you have an example by chance? Yeah, I would say- <laughs> You're so wise, say, teach me your ways. <laughs> I, I, I think that this is, I'm not trying to skirt around my story where it's like, I'm not gonna tell you like the whole um, drama <laughs> of it all, but it's I okay. also have, have learned that a lot of this story and for the reason that I said of like, it's the decisions of the adults in my life that kind of led mm-hmm. to this, isn't always fully mine to tell. So I tried to do a good job of just telling my side of the story without exposing everyone else's side of the story. Of course. But I think an example of that is I had a pretty significant moment where my relationship with my father was disconnected. He was essentially removed from my life and it was disconnected. Mm -hmm. And I could have very easily, and I actually think to some degree I did, and we've had to work through this over the years now that I am an adult that actually understands what was happening and um, all of the consequences of what was happening. Whereas when I was an eight-year-old child, I just, my mind and my heart and my emotions could not wrap around it. Mm -hmm. And so I closed myself off for a while to the potential of a relationship with my dad because I didn't want to be hurt again. I didn't want to feel that that disconnect happen again, that removal happen again, some of the rejection that I feel like maybe came from that as well. So closing myself off to that and um, just grew hard in thinking, I don't need that type of relationship in my life. And you'll even, if you like had a snippet or a snapshot of my life during those years, I was so close to my mom during those years. And it was because I was overcompensating. Uh, I didn't have a strong relationship with like an adult male figure in my life when my dad was removed from the picture. And so I overcompensated in this like really strong and in some ways unhealthy attachment to my mom that I would have severe anxiety if I couldn't be around her. And even just like for times of like being at school and things like that, there was a severe anxiety. And so as an adult, and I would say I probably really started working on this in high school, but 
being able to open myself and remain soft to the emotions and the desires to have a relation, like a male relationship, whether that be with my father or just like any male, that's something I've really had to like work through and overcome. And that that's what I mean by that is like, if I closed off those emotions completely, then I don't think I ever really would have had redemption or any type of healing in that. And um, it would continue to have consequences in my relationships to come. Absolutely. Yeah, resilience is such a gift from your higher power, mm-hmm. identifying that you have that strength within you and that it doesn't come from the validation of others. And it's interesting that you had done that as young as your like high school years, because for me, I'm just taking it on now. I'm just scraping away the scar tissue of acting tough from my 20s to start to understand that I can be resilient and, and you know what I mean? So I'm, I look to people like you and say, my gosh, like you're there in such a raw, vulnerable place and yet you're, well, but let's get into it. Cause I'm sure it's affecting parts of you. And so how are you doing? How That's are you? That's a really interesting question. <laughs> Has anyone um, asked you that lately? Can I yeah, hug you? <laughs> yeah, you I do actually get asked a lot. And I, it, it's nice to be asked in a, in a setting like this, because this is a setting where you're like, you like genuinely, we have time to like flesh it out, right? Yeah, um, we do. When you get asked how you're doing, just like in passing, <laughs> then you're just like, uh, well, <laughs> do you have a couple hours? <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's been, it's been a tough year. It's been it's been a tough life. I mean, I think most of us can say that, right? Like, and I, this year has been really, I think, particularly interesting for me and my journey emotionally, mentally, physically, because living in Ukraine, doing the work that I do, well, one, I work with children who have horrible stories. And there's this concept of like trauma stewardship that I've had to kind of figure out because I get exposed to other people's trauma, specifically children. And I get to figure out how to hold that well, um, without carrying it, without trying without to be triggered or to lose myself in, in what I'm experiencing, witnessing through others. And then two, I am have experiencing my own new levels of trauma living in a country that's at war. And it's taken me even probably to this point to be able to admit that I'm having those experiences because it feels weird for me to say that I, that because my family's not here. I haven't been directly attacked. My city hasn't been directly attacked and mm-hmm. I haven't lost everything. And there's so many people who have lost so much here. So it's taken me a while to be able to admit that I also am experiencing levels of trauma just by being here. And the, the interesting thing about that that kind of ties through my whole line of my story is that being here and um, having like the moments where I feel unsafe or scared or fearful have brought up and dug up emotions from my past because like my mind and like my nervous system and my body is reminded of this feeling of like unsafety. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden I'm taken back to, you know, when I was a child or college years, like times when I also have felt like this. Mm -hmm. And so I've had to, what I feel like is the most inconvenient time had to kind of delve up some of these old traumas and trauma responses and wounds that I've gotten to rework through and revisit just because I'm in a setting where I sometimes feel unsafe again or I feel triggered. When you see the kids and when you're able to bond with them, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you speak, you speak their language, right? I am learning their language. Luckily, Christy, I pretty much work with children who are like two, three-year-olds and then children with special needs. So my level of Ukrainian is enough to communicate with them. That's so beautiful, though. That truly is so beautiful. Mm -hmm. This is blowing my mind. Not only are you full circling in our conversation, full circling Mm -hmm. in life while also enduring new trauma, Mm -hmm. you're able to bond with these and learn their language and be there for them. Wow, that's just so, and so yeah, okay. But how does it feel 
to connect with them? Like, does it make it worth your while, so to speak? There is truly nothing I would rather be doing with my life right now. Like, there is not a point in this earth. There is not a job I'd rather be working. When I say I'm working my dream job, like, I mean that to the fullest extent. Extent, Like, I'm not being dramatic. <laughs> I, I love what I get to do. It is... It is so challenging, but it is so worthwhile and so fruitful that I truly wouldn't want to be anywhere else. Like they make everything make no sense and all the sense at the same time. Like I get to wrestle with all of like the existential crisis of like, why, how, how could this be happening with them? But I also get to be reminded of like how pure and beautiful and exciting and joyful children are and mm -hmm. like the hope and the expectancy that they have in their life. And, and that's what really drives me forward because like, like you said about resilience and like where do we get that? Where do we muster that up? And I think for me, it is in like the hope that we can do better as a society, as a world, as humans. Like I'm a Christian, I'm motivated by my faith. And when I like work with these children, I am motivated every single day that we can be doing better for these children, that we can see a brighter future, that there can be more good in the world tomorrow than there is today based on the decisions that we make and the way that we pour out our love. And also for them to experience your love, Christian or otherwise, right? But right, to experience yeah. your love, to have your resilience role modeled, because all they're doing is seeing what's around them. At su and by the way, like the more I delve into my own interests in terms of childhood traumas and stuff, and the more I'm mm -hmm. learning about it with books like What Happened to You, which I've mentioned several mm -hmm. times, you know, trauma can start very, very early. Yeah. But so can the resilience factor. So mm -hmm. can the role modeling of having the the advocacy around them. Those are the mm -hmm. the grains of of truth, you know, for them to hold on to, whether subconscious or not. And that's really a beautiful thing that you're that you're offering them. Can we go into the specifics of your work? Was it shade? Shade for children. Yeah. Okay, great. Okay. But it's not an NGO, right? It is. So Shade for okay. Children is a, an NGO that's based here in Ukraine. There's also a U.S. nonprofit side of it as well. But there, that organization is how I first got introduced into orphan care here in Ukraine. Got it. And so Shade for Children, it's in the U.S. It's there as well. Mm -hmm. Had you written your children's book before deciding to do this or what happened? Yeah, my children's book was actually... It happened in college. I was a creative writing minor and my mentor um, in college said, hey, I work with this publishing group and we want to branch into children's book. Do you want to write us a children's book? Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, absolutely, I do. And so that's where that came from. It's completely disconnected. Um, but I actually was able to have brought a copy here with me and like have it with the kids. So that that's pretty cool. But I didn't know that when I wrote that, that I was then going to be reading it to small children in Ukraine. What's the story about? It's actually a retelling of an African folklore about the sun and the moon and how the sun and the moon went to live their destinies of ruling the day and the night. It's a, it's a really sweet little story, but it's based on an African folklore story. That's awesome. Okay, so you put your application in or how, how did you hear about Shade? So I came to Ukraine for the first time in 2018. And I came as a part of a bigger missions trip. I went on this missions trip called the World Race. You visit 11 countries over the course of 11 months. Um, and essentially, you get the opportunity to be exposed to multiple types of missions work, NGO work, nonprofit work, humanitarian work. It's like ranges everything from like very church focused to very like humanitarian focused. But I was on that trip. I came to Ukraine as a part of that trip and got 
connected with Shade for Children while I was here. And um, Shade for Children is not some big massive organization that has like all these employees. It is a husband and a wife team. The husband is American. He married a Ukrainian woman. And um, they have just been for like the last 10 years been advocating for Ukrainian children all throughout Ukraine, but primarily here in the West where I live. And so I got connected with them and they were doing something within orphan care that I hadn't seen in other parts of the world where I had got to kind of experience this a little bit because their motivation wasn't just meeting the immediate need of the child like in this moment. Their motivation was really reform um, within the orphan care system here in Ukraine, which is like desperately needed. And so they were working like very closely with like the social services, the directors of the orphanage, really trying to get kids in a position where they could be removed from the institution and put into families, whether that's through reunification, adoption or foster care. And there's just not a lot of people doing that. There's not a lot of people advocating for these children in that way. So when I saw that and got to experience that in 2018, that was when the light went off for me. And I was like, when I saw the need, I saw that there was not not enough people that were kind of serving in this role. And two, I saw a like heart connection that I had with this place and these people and these children that I could not deny. It's the closest thing that I think I have to falling in love. I just like fell in love with Ukraine and the people and this type of care. You were truly so, called. Yeah. Do you feel like it was like a calling, a higher power or something speaking to you in some way? Absolutely. Within three days of me being in Ukraine, like Ukraine was not on my radar at all. It was, I had traveled through Europe um, a little bit when I was in college. I studied abroad for a semester and had traveled through Europe, but Ukraine was not on my radar. I didn't know anything about it. It's history, it's people, it's language. But within three days of being in country, I looked to my friend and I said, I think I'm going to move to Ukraine. (laughs) And she was like, what? Like, we just got here. And I was like, I know, isn't that crazy? And as I kept saying it out loud to like more people or like my mom, the more true it just felt. I bet your mom, what was your mom's reaction? (laughs) Okay, my mom is like so much cooler than I think. She like, she's never told me no for anything that I have dreamed up or wanted to do. Um, She's always just been like, yeah, of course. Like, yeah, she's incredible. And she has always like seen me doing bigger things than I ever could have imagined for myself. So any idea that I've had or thrown out there, she's been like, okay. (laughs) So I don't think she was surprised at all. And yeah, it definitely does feel like, I I know that this was, my purpose in life. This is what I was created to do. I feel like God has orchestrated so many things in my life that have actually equipped me to be in this role, like life experience that has equipped me beyond a degree or, you know, um, a certain path of study. Right. Like I said, I don't know what else I would be doing with my life if it wasn't this. Nothing else makes sense the way that this does. The kids don't necessarily need you to be a doctor for you to be helpful. Mm-hmm. They need your arms and your closeness and your smell and your warmth. And so what do you do with the kids? Yeah. So my time here is kind of split up into a couple different categories. So I do have the direct contact time that I have with the kids. So there's one orphanage that I primarily go to in a village outside of the city where I live. And um, at this orphanage, there's about 120 kids that live there total. But I work specifically with two of the groups that make up about 35 children. That doesn't feel like much. And even when I say it, I'm like, that doesn't, that's not very many children. But in order for me to be able to have like that one-on-one time and to like get to know these children and build relationships and have them like me be a role in their life where they trust me and can rely on me, it, it can't really be more than that. And so I split up my afternoons between these two groups and it's, it's a little different every day, but you know, sometimes we're playing with Play-Doh. Sometimes we're practicing our colors and our numbers. Sometimes we're just outside and we're running around and they're going crazy. And I love those days because they don't feel like they get a whole lot of them. And like yesterday, we built like piled up leaves because it's very much fall here right now. Um, we piled up leaves and like tramp- trampled through all the leaves and threw them up and we had dirt in our hair and everything. And it was so much fun. But yeah, I just get to be with them and 
love them and care for them in whatever they might need in that day. And sometimes it's just me with one of them. Sometimes it's me with the whole group, with the other caregivers that um, like actually work for the orphanage. But that's what I get to do four days a week. So I go there Monday, Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays that I get to spend with them. Mm -hmm. And then the rest of my time is spent either like working within like the advocacy sector of my mission or what I feel like I'm called to do. So I am, you know, creating content for my Instagram, my TikTok. That like really just kind of landed in my lap. I was not really expecting to have platforms like like I wanted to have platforms for this, but I did not expect to have them so quickly. But when the war started, I was by the grace of God given this following. Mm-hmm. And so I've been able to have like really, really awesome conversations with people about Ukrainian orphan crisis, about the process for international adoption, just about, you know, everything that's wrapped up in this. And so advocating on that sector and then also kind of advocating more behind the scenes. And I do this through several relationships that I have here in Ukraine, but talking with social workers here about a specific child's case, um, you know, whether they're stuck in the system, you know, there should be getting towards adoption status or, you know, where's the family? Is there options for reunification? What does the family need? If that is an option, can we help provide some of the needs for this family? Is it education? Like, are they worried about education? A lot of times parents will put their children into the orphan care system here because they don't feel like their child can get a good education otherwise. Really? Um, which is really, yeah, it's a really That's unfortunate really misconception. They s- yeah. Oh my gosh. So they sacrifice... Well, and forgive my ignorance here, but there's not a there's not like a class system per se like we have in America, middle, upper, and lower, right? It's probably different. So there is, but it is different. I was going to say, like, what is the type of family that would sacrifice their relationship with their child so that they could get an education? That seems so devastating. This is the tough thing. Whenever I'm I'm really dissecting it in my own brain and having conversations about this because. We come from a culture where that would be like the worst case scenario, right? Um, like surrendering your child, um, having, you know, your child go into foster care in the U.S. It's like There's worst so much case pride scenario. involved with that too. Yeah. Like it's to, to give your child up is, yeah, it's a dangerous risk too. Here there is, there's a different mentality around that where there's this mentality that the orphan care system, the government caring for the children isn't the worst case scenario. And that oftentimes the government can do a better job caring for especially children with like special needs and things like that than can happen in the home. And this is, this is simply just misinformation. And a lot of this ties back to Soviet era thinking and mentalities where like historically when Ukraine was tied to the Soviet Union, so many things, so many aspects of their life was government run. And they were taught to believe that that was what was in their best interest. And Ukraine is only 31 years post being tied and under the Soviet Union. And so, so many of those mentalities remain that it's government's responsibility for this and that. And unfortunately, childcare um, has really fallen under that. And I think there's been moves towards reform. And I would say there's a big portion of the population that would say that that's not their mentality anymore. But there's still a big portion of the population that just is. It's a through line. Yeah. It's an antiquated through line. Exactly. It's kind of like with here where we have our generational trauma things that we're breaking from like our Mm -hmm. families and the things we endured how we're not doing it with our kids like your emotions are a good thing that's interesting that's very interesting and then there was also a romanian orphan crisis as well wasn't there in the 90s well pretty much any eastern european country and um any any country that's been tied under the soviet union like russia also has a an orphan crisis and all of these countries throughout where Romania and other countries outside of Ukraine have kind of the leg up is that Romania is already a part of the EU, um, the European Union. And so part of the path in order to become part of that Western world, join the European Union, is to deinstitutionalize your children. So institutions really don't exist in the more developed 
areas of the world, especially Western Europe, like they have existed here in Eastern Europe. And so, yes, Romania absolutely um, experienced this. And I think we could take a lot of examples from how Romania was able to deinstitutionalize their children. But I know that they, they ran into some other, you know, you kind of open a can of worms <laughs> and you kind of reveal all of these other issues when you just try to close all the orphanages. So what I would love to see happen <laughs> within my lifetime, if possible, is a true heart shift, a true mentality shift where families feel equipped to care for their children and to keep them in home and communities feel equipped to support those families that are at risk, that are vulnerable. Um, so where the responsibility doesn't fall on the government to keep these children alive, because genuinely that's the only thing that these institutions are doing is keeping them alive and really just equip those families to where we can have family units stay together and when that happens, then we're going to see stronger communities, we're going to see a stronger government, and we're going to see Ukraine really flourish in the beauty of everything that makes this culture so rich, so vibrant, so strong, um, the way that the world is seeing them now. Wow, that's amazing. So how has your day-to-day -day life changed since the Russian invasion and the continued war, which I know is not been hitting you guys, but I'm assuming that you've probably seen some people come in. Yeah. From those different areas, right? Yeah. I mean, a hundred percent. My city and my region is probably one of the highest intake of um, displaced, internally displaced people from other regions in Ukraine. So we have so many people here right now. One of the first things that I got to be a part of when the invasion first started was helping set up IDP, which is internally displaced people shelters. So we helped convert a church here in the city completely into a shelter. So we were bringing in mattresses, we were purchasing sheets, we were buying food, completely converting this church into being a shelter for these people. Yeah, it was just, the first few weeks, <laughs> it was just crazy. Like, I think back on those weeks and I don't know how any of us did it. Like, we never ate, we never slept, we were running purely on adrenaline and coffee for weeks and weeks. And we were just doing whatever we could to meet whatever need was presented. And, and hour by hour, minute by minute, it seemed like there was more needs that were coming up. There were more people coming in. We needed beds. We needed, like, I gave up my apartment multiple times so that families could come stay in my apartment and I went and stayed on a friend's couch because the need was just so palpable in every moment. And yeah, so it's, it's transparent to everything about me as a person and my day-to-day -day life, if I'm going to be totally honest. Um, yeah, please. We are definitely back to some level of normalcy here. We figured out, like in the early weeks of the war, um, of the full-scale invasion, we didn't know what to expect. We didn't know how far they would come. We didn't know how long Ukraine could hold. We didn't know anything. And now that we're several months into this, we kind of know what we're doing and we know what to expect and we know what different warnings mean. And what, like when the news says this, we actually know what those words mean, whereas early on we didn't. So that's what's changed, you know, a lot. We have more understanding of what our reality is living here, but yeah, it's it's changed so much about Ukraine. And, and even at the orphanage, I mean, we see so many more children there now um, than we did before. I would say, gosh, I mean, when I first got here, we weren't seeing like a ton of new kids coming in. Um, even in my like trips that I've been here in the past, like you'd see like some, some turnover of children coming in and children leaving. But in those, I don't know, like six months after the invasion started, we were seeing a really high increase of children coming in to the orphanage. And I don't know what all of those situations were, some of them were children that had evacuated from other regions and were getting moved to our region. In other orphanages? Mm-hmm. Okay. So at the orphanage where I work at specifically, we have like 40 children that came from another orphanage in the East that came over with their caregivers and are staying here and have been here since like March. So yeah, we've definitely seen the impact that it's having just like on the everyday operations of an orphanage. But it's also, it's... It's with everything here. I, I don't think you could look out in the world, you know, in Ukraine and see something that hasn't been touched by this. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, I, I. it's hard to, as you know, it's like being American, it's hard to 
for us to say, oh, we get it. You know what I'm saying? Like it's people listening feel so disconnected that your content, your advocacy is is a part of how they can understand what's really happening too, because so many people are terrified that, oh my gosh, she's going to lose Wi-Fi. Like what happens if she loses the Wi-Fi? Yeah. You know, like I just looked up on Twitter before I spoke to you and it said that I guess there's martial law in effect now or something. I mean, are you guys constantly aware of what's happening? Yeah, we've had martial law here since the beginning. But what did happen today is they affected martial law in the annexed regions of Ukraine. So yeah, like every time that there's like a a shift of movement, we have this, I didn't know about this in when I lived in the States until I moved to Europe, but we have this app called Telegram and you can join all these Telegram channels. And it is like, we get news like this, like as soon as missiles are going off, as soon as drones are flying over, as soon as any of this is happening, your, your Telegram channel is like blowing up and it's like live updates of what's going on, which is like both helpful and not <laughs> Yes, it can be very chaotic and it can be really tough. So you've got to you've got to know that's something you've got to balance, right? Like how much of of this am I going to intake? How much do I need to know in order to stay aware and stay wise and stay safe? But how much can I also distance myself so I can also stay sane and stay safe? Well, do you have do you have an exit strategy? I own a car, so I'll just. You're going to drive to, can you take 35 kids with your car? <laughs> I could fit probably about 12 if I squeeze them. <laughs> Let's do it. Alina, we, she's Kim okay, Possible. So she the- can do anything. <laughs> it's really funny though, because we joke about this, but when the when the invasion first started, I didn't own my car yet. I didn't buy my car until like maybe three or four weeks after the invasion started. But when the invasion started, my my friend who I work very closely with, who runs Shade for Children, he has, he has a minivan. And we were like legitimately discussing like, okay, if they're going to come this far, because we live in the West, we've got a mountain range basically between us and where the on the ground war is happening over in the East. Um, so we're like, okay, if they start coming over the mountain range, how many kids do we think we can fit in here? And I was like, do you think we can get more vehicles? Can we get more vans? And like, this was legitimate problem solving that we were doing in the early weeks. And that sounds insane because if we were to go just like pick up these children and try to drive them into Europe, that is human trafficking. Like that's what that is. But we were so desperate. Like we were so like, it felt like that could be a reality for us that we were actually problem solving that. And I think I have to kind of joke about it now in order to like keep myself in a lighthearted frame of mind. But I sure. also like with everything that's happening in the East with the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant, like I have like a plan in case nuclear fallout happens because it'll, it would take about 24 to 48 hours for any type of nuclear fallout to reach my region. And so I know what I'm going to do if that's the case. <laughs> like, why do I have to have that? I don't like it's mind boggling that that's my reality, but this this is the world I live in. So that's that's what we do. So how are you then maintaining that joy? You know what? I don't mean to bring you down by having this conversation with you. It's it's <laughs> super educational for a lot of people. We'll talk about how they can it's help. It's reality. In it. So I don't really mind talking about it. So. Okay, that's good to live in reality. I think then it is also a balance of how do you live with reality but with joy at the same time. So how are, what's joyful mm-hmm. for you? What is mm-hmm. making you smile and laugh? Is it Netflix? Is it whatever? Like what's making you stay Alina? I think I remember in the, in the early weeks, I, I guess this conversation is going again full circle is I really started numbing myself in a lot of ways. I think because my adrenaline was just pumping so high and I was just running off of that, that like emotions weren't hitting me for many, many weeks. And I remember I actually compared myself to a numb foot in my in an Instagram caption because I felt like, you know, when you sit on your leg for a while and your foot goes numb and then you stand up and then it's all prickly. The moment I started feeling my emotions again, I felt like that prickly foot where I was like, okay, I know I'm getting my feeling back and I know this is going to be good in a minute. But like right now, this feels really icky and I'm all prickly. And that's what it felt like maybe like May when I was like really starting to let kind of all the emotions come back. And I I think honestly, like it was just the grace of God that I was able to, to hold on to hope. I 
I truly believed from the beginning of all of this that it was going to end in victory for Ukraine. And I haven't lost faith in that. And so being able to have something to look forward to, and it is Ukraine's victory that we're looking forward to, I think that really keeps me grounded from spiraling. But yeah, I also have like so many coping mechanisms. I listen to so much music. Like when I can't deal with my own thoughts, I, I have music blaring in my ears. I have Who are you listening to? In my apartment at all times. Well, Good. Taylor Swift releases Midnight's this week. So <laughs> yeah. You best believe I am blasting. She's going to have a T red Swift scarf throughout my apartment. And a tea. <laughs> and you're going to go into those fall leaves that you said you am have. I not, and... Am I not giving like Midnight's era vibes with my shirt? Oh, definitely. My shirt and I painted I think you my nails Midnight. <laughs> I love it. So you're a Swifty. Got it. Chat. Oh, a thousand percent. Oh my God. Taylor so needs she's to like meet helped you. Me get through. <laughs> Taylor, Alina needs an autograph. <laughs> um, I actually am going to get an autograph because I purchased one oh, from good. Her, signed, her signed vinyl collection that she released. Oh man, that's awesome. Yeah. I have a lot of music going at all times. And with the kids too. We listen to stuff. Like I turn on music all the time when I'm with them. It's such a healing like mechanism yeah, language music. language mm-hmm. yeah it's a language that you don't need to necessarily understand and whatnot i also bought i have a projector for my apartment like one of those movie projectors so i can turn my apartment into a movie theater and that has like saved the day so many times <laughs> and i can just like project a whole movie on my wall and just curl up you know with a blanket on my couch that that saves the day a lot do you, as a sort of an expat, do you miss, do you miss the States? Do you miss your mom? I miss my mom all the time. Yeah. Um, I yeah. I, I wouldn't say I miss the States. There's, there's <laughs> comforts of the States that I miss. Sure. I, I just feel like my heart was made for Europe. I, this is, this place feels more like home than anywhere. And I've lived all over the States. I've lived in like five different States and this place feels more like home. But yeah, I miss my mom. I miss Chick-fil-A. I miss Target. <laughs> I miss Amazon, being able to have Amazon, you know, shipped to me in three days. But uh, yeah, I I don't envision myself necessarily going back anytime soon, though. Oh, so how can everyone help you? Not you, but the you with all of you. How can we help? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, I think where I need the help, help the most right now is just like continue spreading the word and talking about what's going on here. So I try to stay really active on my Instagram and my TikTok, which is the same handle for both. It's at Alina K, A-L-L-I-N-A-K-A-Y. I try to share as much information on there as I can regarding Ukraine, how the war is progressing, because I know as difficult as it is to follow that information, it is so important that people don't forget because Ukraine as a country, as a people group, are still relying very heavily on the aid of other countries in order to survive, especially with winter coming up. It's going to be an incredibly difficult time here. And so just continuing to spread that message and keeping it on the forefront of people's minds because we are, whether we like it or not, conditioned to just move on past things so quickly. And I'm seeing that and it's hard because I get it, I understand, but I also have just taken it upon myself to try to keep whatever sphere of influence I have in the know and caring about it. Um, and then as things continue to move forward and as Ukraine continues to take back their land, like my prayer, my hope is that we do get real reform in the orphan care system. And as Ukraine's rebuilding their cities, they're also rebuilding this system. Okay. And that's that's going to need a lot of voices and a lot of momentum behind it to really get that going. So I'm going to keep talking about it until it lands on the right ears and something happens. But um, yeah, just just helping keep that message alive. Exactly. Mm-hmm. All that matters is the kids. At the end of the day, that's all that matters. And I feel like so many people can understand that and they don't have to speak the same language. They don't have to be from the same background. All that matters is the kids in that joy that we were talking about. They literally are the most vulnerable. Like they're the most vulnerable that we are ever at in, in life. Like they have no one and like they are the victims for good or for worse of the decisions of the adults around them 
And so if we're not going to make decisions that are in the best interest of these children, then like we are ruining an entire generation. Like we are losing them. And the statistics around what happens to these children, it's terrifying. It really is. What can we do with the winter coming? I guess I'm kind of concerned about that as a mom. I'm like, can we send firewood? Can we send, you know, blankets? Mm -hmm. Do you have a link? Do you have a cash app? Is there something that we can do to donate? Yeah, on my, um, like the accounts that I just shared, I have a link. I have, I accept donations. All of it's through a nonprofit in the States that partners with me. So it's all 501c3, you know, tax deductible donations. And that money does get directly to me where I can direct it here on the ground. And I will just say, um, there are so many people here on the ground that are receiving money from like outside of Ukraine. And my encouragement would be like, get the money. Like if you want to help, financially, like get the money in those people's hands because we can immediately get it where it needs to be here on the ground. Whereas with some of the bigger organizations, there's just so much bureaucracy with it that it kind of actually takes a long time for that aid to get on the ground to where it's needed. So yeah, here we're expecting to be supporting a handful of at-risk families here in my region um, with things like firewood, clothing, food, um, to get through the winter. And then we're also directing, we're, I still help fund multiple evacuations out of the East, especially in the areas where they're completely cut off from gas and water so that they can get into places where they're going to have access to stay safe throughout the winter. But yeah, I have a link. Thank you so much for asking. I have a link um, on my Instagram, on my TikTok, on anything else that I am connected to for donations. It's through an organization called The Cause, and they support me as a nonprofit. Awesome. Alina, thank you so much for everything that you do. Please stay safe. Thanks. I really appreciate it. Please hug as many babies and send them my love. Maybe show them some some Kim Possible. I'll do whatever it takes. I will learn a different language. (laughs) I will learn a different language. I wonder if I could get that. I show them English cartoons all the time and they still absolutely love it. I'm actually convinced that the kids I work with are going to be bilingual because I speak to them in English when I don't know Ukrainian. I'm like, this is going to, this is going to work out for you. (laughs) You know, yeah, no, I guess what, but two years old, two years old are too young still. I have a three and a five-year-old and and my five-year-old is is starting to get curious about it, but we don't push anything on anybody, but, um, (laughs) but thank you for being an amazing human being. The world needs people like yourself and, and also all the other people that are helping, you know, that are down there. There's so many people that have just come in in droves to help, and it's been incredible to see. It, like you see the worst and the best of society and humanity in these situations. So, okay, well, I love you. I love you too. <laughs> stay soft and resilient. <laughs> yes, amen. And stay safe. And thank you for thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Christy. I really appreciate it. Vulnerable is hosted by me, Christy Carlson Romano, produced by Elizabeth Joy Windham and executive produced by Brendan Rooney. Our sound engineer and editor is Elizabeth Joy Windham, and our video editor is Eduardo Gamba. Follow Vulnerable wherever you listen to podcasts so you can join me every week for a vulnerable conversation. And be sure to follow Vulnerable on Instagram and TikTok at The Vulnerable Podcast. And make sure to tune in to my YouTube to watch the video version. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply.